and uh, I want to show you something called syncretism. Syncretism, which is really religious syncretism that took place then. It's always taken place, and it's taking place now. This is the number one thing that cripples people individually, congregations, families, denominations, and nations, even so. But let's first see, what is the definition of uh, religious syncretism? We see that in Wikipedia, it defines syncretism as the, the blending of religious belief systems into a new system. It's the blending of religious systems, religious thoughts, and religious beliefs. Encyclopedia Britannica defines it as the fusion of diverse religious beliefs and practices. So it's the fusion of it. Uh, Merriam-Webster says that it is the combination of different forms of belief or practices. And of course, we have obvious examples like, for instance, interfaith congregations. I googled some of them and they're everywhere. So you get these congregations where it doesn't matter what you are, what you believe, you can go there and be a part of this community of interfaith belief. So in other words, they really believe that there are, that all religions eventually end up at the same place. This is a trending thought in the Western culture, in our society. And um, I, I'm reminded of the first time I was actually introduced to this. I was watching Oprah Winfrey and uh, there was this, this conversation being had about um, how to get to God. And eventually it turned into a little bit of an argument and she had to shut it down. And she says, look, I, it's impossible for there to be only one way. Yeah. There has to be more ways to God. And um, the idea that people hold on to is that, God, I know you gave us Jesus as one way, but I'm simply not, sufficient, not, not happy with just one way. I want you to give me more than one way. You know, but what's, what ought to take our breath away is that there is even one way. <laughs> you know, like that he didn't actually make a way, but we're never satisfied. Or, uh, we're never happy with anything. And so people are now demanding, of course, that there be more ways than one. And so, of course, we see this in the interfaith uh, communities and congregation, but we see it also with something that started a few years ago, I'm talking about a decade ago, uh, called Chrislam. And, um, but those are the obvious examples of it. What I want to do today is I want to start developing the idea and showing you how that very same sin is so insidious is so hidden, and it actually happens in so many different fronts. We don't even know it. We don't even realize how different belief systems are flowing together into one, and we oftentimes happily participate. So in biblical language, of course, this would be called idol worship, because the moment you add a second belief system to Scripture, you've created an idol. The moment you add something to God, or you take something away from Him, you have created for yourself a God that is not the God of the Bible. That's why people oftentimes say, well, my God, my God, and then they go down this trend as to what their God is like. And then you always have to point out, but that's not the God of the Bible. So it's okay. You can have that God. Just don't call Him Jesus. <laughs> like, Just don't call Him the God of the Bible, right? And so... The moment you add something to God or take something away from Him, you have created an idol of your own making. Now, I wanted us to look just at two examples 
in Scripture of this concept called religious syncretism. First is the golden calf. The Israelites heard from God through Moses, right? Think about this. So Moses was their connection to God. So Moses goes up Mount Sinai. He says, I'll be back. However, he takes much longer than what they expected. And so they started looking around going like, where is he? You think he's dead? I think he's dead. I think he died. And everybody's like, where did our connection to God go? We have no connection. What are we going to do? And so this is what they in fact did, is they made a golden calf in order to create the next connection they could possibly have with Elohim. And they started worshiping at the foot of this calf, this golden calf that they had made. So what they did was, they in fact introduced a new belief system to the original one they had. This is syncretism. They added the golden calf. The second example is a little bit more insidious. It's not so obvious because you go like, well, we don't have golden calves and we don't do that kind of thing and we don't, we don't do the rain dance around a statue or around a fire. But there are more and more insidious ways of the same thing happening. We oftentimes become guilty of the same. And uh, we see Peter actually fell into this. The Apostle Peter and the Judaizers, they taught the Gentiles that they first, the Gentiles, had to first become Jews in order to then become Christians. So in other words, they first had to get circumcised, and after being circumcised, then they can become part of Christ and participate in Christ. Of course, Paul would have had none of that. Uh, he says, if you're going to be circumcising, why don't you just go all the way and cut it all off? He got so angry. <laughs> Can't believe he said that. And uh, he goes, well, then he went to all the leaders. They talked about it and they decided, nope, Peter is absolutely wrong. You cannot add anything else to this belief system of Christianity. You cannot add Judaism. You cannot add any of their practices in order to make it more complete. And so Peter was, in fact, blending Judaism, out of which they came, to Christianity. And he was making it one. That is syncretism. Now, there are three... Um, let me say this. When you look at the Jewish, the history of the Jewish people, this has always been their downfall. This has always been the thing that crippled them. They would rebel against God by doing what? Worshipping other gods. Idol worshipping. And the moment they did that, God would always deliver them over to a different nation for them to go into slavery or to be oppressed or to lose a war or whatever the case may be. And it was because of that reason that God raised up the judges. Now, we just walked through the judges, right? So they would go into captivity or they would go into exile or they would go into slavery. All of God's doing as a response to their rebellion to God. And as they went in there, God would raise up a, a, a judge to go and deliver them because judges at that time weren't necessarily what we know judges to be. They don't sit in a, a court of law and um, issue out sentences. That's not what a judge was. A judge was more like a military leader, like a Samson. He would go and he would punish Israel's enemy. Anyhow, so this is what... Israel's big problem was. 
God's chosen people consistently walked away from Him in order to worship other false gods, in order to worship idols. And so I thought, why in the world would they keep doing this over and over and over again? And there are three main reasons. Now, there are multiple reasons, but three main reasons. They had such an appetite for adopting false gods. And we, at times, when we do practice syncretism within Christianity today, it's because of the same reasons. So I want to highlight them. The first is, false gods offered them more appealing promises. The promises of the false gods were just sounded nicer in the sense that those promises would satisfy their immediate felt needs. You know, the church moved away from teaching the very Word of God, line upon line, chapter after chapter, because it's too boring. So what we'd rather do is we just go to felt needs. And we go to felt needs. Felt needs is when uh, what touches a person's emotion right now? What can they feel right now that's pressure that they would like to have an answer for? You know, I need a prophecy right now to give me a little bit of hope because my girlfriend just broke up with me. You know, I need a little bit of hope. I know I got myself into big debt, so I just need a prophecy. Can somebody please give me one? <laughs> you know, that's kind of like appealing to my felt needs, right? And so what happened is the church has moved away from Scripture into rather felt needs, and in order to do so, they had to import a lot of psychology in order to help them prop up the felt needs or tickle the ears of the one who needs it. Because the Scriptures, the Word of God, the promises that He gave us right there simply wasn't as appealing or as sensual as the idols would offer. It wasn't as immediate as the idols would offer. So that was the first thing. The second reason they often gave themselves to these false gods was because they would marry the women from other nations. And the reason they married women from other nations was because that was one way of gaining political power. It was a means of diplomacy. So in other words, to make peace with another nation, the king would just import some of the women there, marry them, and bring with those women their false gods, and they would mesh them together. They would marry their belief systems together in order to form a new belief system. This was politically expedient for them. That's why they did it. Thirdly, now we do that today also. How long did it take, let's say, Fox News to start celebrating, you know, what is that month? Pride Month. <laughs> you know, how long did it take them? How long did it take Daily Wire, you know, to have Ruben? What's the guy's name? Dave Rubin on this show. How long does it take these people to, uh, Charlie Kirk, to expand the tent? And what do you have to do to expand the tent? You have to bring in the people that believe contrary to you on basic foundational issues. You have to bring them in in order to not exclude yourself or you become the marginalized individual. You want to stay mainstream. The only way to stay mainstream is, in fact, to employ syncretism, which is what they are doing today. So the first was, those promises appealed to them in a greater way. It was more sensual, it was more immediate. Number two, they married women for political expediency. They want to enlarge their tent. Number three, false God offered them greater freedom to practice and participate in sin. 
I don't know if you've noticed, but every time false idols are worshipped, there's always like sexual immorality that, that's always right there next to it. Now, in studying the biblical response to syncretism, we want to start by looking at the Old Testament prophet Elijah, as I mentioned. And it's important to know two things about this. Uh, the first is know, know that God's timing of raising up Elijah and sending him was very, very key. Why? Because it happened to be Israel, the northern kingdom, not Judah, Israel's lowest part in the history of their nation. It was their worst time in history. Why? Because that was the, during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was an absolutely wicked, wicked king over Israel, God's people. And he was married to a very, very wicked woman. And that is a whole entire different sermon. But we need to understand that God raised up Elijah during this time. The worst possible time within their history. He needed the strongest, most prolific prophet. Secondly, it is important to know the functions of the Old Testament prophet. Oftentimes Christians... They think of a prophet this way. If you had to ask Christians in general, what does a prophet do in the Old Testament? They would basically say they are fortune tellers. They foretell. They predict the future. That is what people think an Old Testament prophet primarily does. But that's not really their primary function. That's a secondary function. So they do that. You know, they do come in and say, this is what's going to happen. Thus saith the Lord, by tomorrow you're dead. All right, so they do tell the future. But the primary function of the Old Testament prophet wasn't foretelling. It was forth-telling. It was forth-telling. Not future predicting, but truth proclaiming. Here's God's truth. And they would proclaim it. That's why they were always lonely. They were in the desert. They were hated. They were murdered. They were marginalized because they were forth-telling, truth-telling, proclaiming God's truth in the face of pagan lies. So if anybody uh, um, invented the idea of telling it as it is, prophets did it. Telling it as it is. That's why today, anybody who might claim to be prophetic, you're prophetic in this way that you are very black and white over issues. That's very prophetic, right? Not so much prediction, but line drawing. <clears throat> These Old Testament prophets served as the conscience of God's people. Remember, God gave you a conscience. He gave us each one because your conscience accuses you or excuses you based on the truth it knows. But secondly, not only were they God's conscience to God's people, but they were God's prosecuting attorneys every single time God's people violated the laws. So in other words, prosecuting attorneys, like every time the people of Israel walked away from God towards false gods, the prophet would be in their face and say, hey, excuse me. So they were God's prosecuting attorneys. Now, Elijah was a very interesting man. Kind of walked out of the desert. Wild man. Feared God, fear no man. And um, Ahab knew this. So Ahab, the king, hated Elijah the prophet because Elijah, Elijah the prophet wasn't giving him just nice prophecies, right? Elijah the prophet 
gave him God's word. And Ahab happened to be extremely wicked. And so they had to face off with one another a few times. Ahab, as a matter of fact, called King, uh, King Ahab, actually called Elijah um, the troubler of Israel. In other words, you are the one that troubles this nation. We'd be so much better off without you. And so Elijah was describing, uh, described in this way. And when Ahab's transgressions became so severe that Elijah decided to call on the name of the Lord, call on God in the midst of Ahab's wickedness. And God, as a matter of fact, cursed Israel with a three-year drought that destroyed their crops. However, there was another confrontation, the one we want to focus on today. It's between Elijah and King Ahab uh, on, the, on, on Mount Carmel. So I'd like us to read through this event with commentary made, all right? So let's turn to it in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. It says, When Ahab saw Elijah, King Ahab said to him, Is it, It's you, you troubler of Israel. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Well, I just want to stop there and mention that. Uh, how many times have we now heard that theological conservative Christians are narrow-minded deplorables, and they are what is wrong with this world? That is, in essence, what King Ahab accused Elijah of. Here's Elijah's answer in verse 18. He says, I have not troubled Israel. You have. And your father's house. You and your father's house. You are what's wrong with this nation. And then he says, why? He says, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. The Baals. So Elijah, in fact, is accusing King Ahab right here for being the troubler of Israel. He pins it on Ahab. Of course, this angers Ahab. And he says, because Ahab, you are in fact a compromiser. How did you compromise? You worship idols. That's how you compromise. Verse 19. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah. That equals 850 prophets and priests. He says, those prophets of Asherah who eats at Jezebel's table. Now, can you see what's happening here? This is, in fact, Jezebel getting 850 false prophets and priests from Baal and Asherah, two different categories of belief systems, and brought them into Israel, a third category of belief system, in order to produce a fourth category of belief system. Can you see that? This is a coming together of multiple religions. Ahab was overseeing all of this, and he was okay with it, all of it. Because he was scared of his wife. That's the first thing. And so this is what we call syncretism or religious syncretism. So let's see Elijah, the prophet that God, that God called. Let's see how he deals with this very sin. Verse 20, so Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the, all the people and said, quote, How long? And this is big. This is how he responds to syncretism. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? 
You know, when somebody's limping, they kind of like walk like this, right? When they limp. So they're going back and forth, back and forth. And so he's, he's drawing this picture. He's painting this picture of somebody limping, going back and forth between two opinions. He says, if the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So Elijah challenged the people. Stop being so gray about where you stand. You know, that's one thing. For those that know me well, I really have a hard time with somebody who can't draw lines. If you don't know where somebody stands, it's difficult, right? There's a reason certain people don't draw lines. You know why? Because they want to play both sides, right? That's why. And so he's saying, stop being so gray about what you believe. Draw some lines and decide where you're going to stand. Stop compromising one belief system for the sake of the other. Stop sitting on the fence. Be hot or be cold, as Jesus said it. But stop being so lukewarm. If you're going to follow God, then do it. Watch this. But if you aren't, then stop pretending like you are. And I think that in the West right here, Christianity has become so marginal, or not marginalized, it's so peripheral, right? You can almost be anything and be a Christian today. Literally. You can be a, you, you can be a stinking transvestite and a Christian. Like, how is this even possible? And God help you if you, if, if you tell them they're not. You know, what are you saying? I'm not, I'm not a Christian. So he's saying, you know, if you're going to be following God, then do it. But if you aren't, then stop pretending like you're following God. You're not a follower of God or you are a follower of God. There's no such thing as a non-practicing one. That's the point, right? If you're going to claim to be a Christian, be one. If not, stop saying that you are. Imagine you told people that today, what Elijah told people back then. Imagine you, you stand up at a family party at Thanksgiving. <laughs> that would be interesting. Uh, hey, Uncle so-and-so, <laughs> how long will you go limping between two different options? Jeremy, how long will you attempt to remain neutral, Uncle Frankie? When are you going to decide to stand up for Christ? Against what? You know, like, I love that question. When you say to somebody, hey, um, would you like, do you want Jesus to save you? The answer is, save me from what? You know? If you say, hey, it's time to stand up for Christ. They go like, stand up for Christ against what? And it's only because they don't realize how the devil is consistently, constantly working towards syncretistic Christianity, where Christianity has become, has, um, has, was like a magnet. It's just drawn so much to it, it's no longer actual Christian. Don't ever forget this. Christianity is an ancient faith. It's an ancient faith. Therefore, if my Christianity today isn't historical, it's not Christianity at all. Right? So if I, if I say progressive Christianity, what's progressive Christianity? 
progressive Christianity is the one that's now very different from the one that originally existed. So when are you going to decide to take a stand for Christ against progressive Christianity or against secular humanists in humanism in our churches? I think it's too cold. Because usually just Tony goes, but when four people are doing the same, it's probably too cold. Get Tony a thicker blanket. So what are you going to decide to stand, for Christ, stand with Christ on against progressive Christianity, against secular humanism infiltrating the actual churches? Oftentimes, think about this. If you go back to the beginning years of the Salvation Army, that was a major revival for Christ. Why? Go there now. <laughs> Jesus ain't nowhere to be found, <laughs> right? He's standing on the outside of that door knocking, <laughs> right? What happened? What happened to that fantastic move of God within the Salvation Army? Syncretism, that's what happened. The exact same problem Israel's always dealt with, syncretism. Adopting other belief systems into what they already believe. Now to the point where you can't even recognize it for what it is. When are you going to decide to take a stand for Christ against liberal theology in pulpits? I'm talking about liberal theology in pulpits. Theology that says, well, Adam wasn't a real person. He was a, it's just a story. Or the crucifixion didn't really happen. It's a psychological message. I love Jordan Peterson, but there was a real crucifixion. It's not just a psychological message given to us by God to live sacrificially. When are you going to decide to take a stand for Christ? Against what? Well, against sinful wokeism in the church leadership today. When are you going to do it? Well, people will tell you when you, when you ask Uncle Frankie that at your next Thanksgiving party, that here's what they probably will say. He'll say, well, hey, stop being so radical. You know, stop being so judgmental. You're such a bigot. Just stop. You know, like, that's how you read it. That's how you interpret it. Let's go to verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it, in, lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you can call on the name of your God. And I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, okay, it's well spoken. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, 
For he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves. Watch this. They cut themselves after they custom with swords and lances. Wow. Until the blood gushed out of them. You know, these people are committed. Man alive. Think about people who believe they deserve heaven because they're good enough as Christians. Let's think about it. Okay, so here we have the doctrine of, of salvation. Saved by grace alone, right? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone are you saved. All right. And they go like, wait, what? one second. Let's just add some good works to it. All right. You have to add some charity. Think about those people who believe this syncretistic doctrine where you take the Word of God and you add your thoughts to it or you add your opinion or philosophy to it. So that's syncretism right there. It's now idol worship. Anybody who actually, a Christian who believes that he's going to go to heaven because he has sufficient amount of good works is in fact serving a false god, right? Why? Because he has a belief contrary to Scripture. He has created for himself a belief system that doesn't exist within the framework of Scriptures. Therefore, he is actually not looking to the God of Scriptures. He's looking to his own created God, an idol. But imagine those people who believe that they go to heaven because of good works. Imagine trying to tell them that they have a progressive Christianity or a syncretistic Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. It's almost impossible to convince them. Why? These people are so committed to their own good works, aren't they? It's like, don't take my good works away from me. I worked hard at them. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, done, I've put a lot of elbow grease in trying to make this life be a moral life. There has to be a payoff what I'm trying to point out to you, like these guys were cutting themselves. They're so committed to what they believed. In the same way, people who have created for themselves syncretistic Christianity are extremely committed to that. Some of the hardest people to minister to are those who have a little bit of Christianity in them. Just enough to become inoculated against the actual Christian message. It's almost like they've had this, this semi-Christian vaccine They, they, just, they just literally inoculated towards the actual message of the cross. And so it's very, very hard for these people to actually hear the truth. It's very, very hard for these people to shed their beliefs. Why? They are so committed. I mean, blood must spill, and they remain committed. As a matter of fact, try and convince a person who's, who shows zero sanctification, try and convince them that they need to get saved. Now, remember, salvation, you only have one proof that you're saved, right? You, the Bible talks about your salvation in three tenses. You were saved, justified. You are being saved, sanctified. It says you will be saved, glorified. But the only way to know that you were justified is if you are being sanctified. If God saved you, the only way to know that He saved you is that He is, being, that he is still saving you. In other words, He is still sanctifying you. 
That's how you know He's working in your life. For it is God who works within us both to will and to do His good pleasure. So the only possible way of knowing and being secured, that's why Paul said, test yourself. How are you supposed to test yourself? Is God, in fact, working in your life? That's the question. But think about this. Like we, um, we're praying for somebody. And uh, we were standing in a circle, and it was a family that we were close to. And they had a little nephew or cousin that lived far out of town. And this young man was apparently born in the church, and he prayed the prayer, and he did everything that needed to be done to be a Christian, went through, uh, went through children's church and everything. But then there came a time in his life where, uh, you know, he started dabbling in everything, whether it be drugs and and uh, same-sex relations, and he was, just, he was just doing all strange, crazy things over a long period of time. And so it happened that he formed some kind of cancer on his face. And um, they were waiting for the final result from the doctors, of course, knowing that this is very uh, serious. So we stood in a circle, and we were praying, and I forget all that this young man was involved with, but I just remember thinking, like, he really needs to come to the Lord. He really does. Because you, re- you know that your works don't save you, right? But they for sure are a sign whether you're saved or not. <laughs> you can't just walk away from the Lord and be saved both at the same time, at least not over a long period of time. Of course, Christians fall. Christians fall severely. And Christians cannot not come back to God. They have to come back to God. All you have to do is read through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and you will know all about that. Anyhow, so we stood in the circle, took hands, and we prayed. And we said, Lord, um, I I prayed like a general prayer that you have mercy upon this man. And then Tina starts praying, and she starts praying. She says, God, I pray that you save this young man's soul. Because we're thinking about, let's say he doesn't have long to live. Lord, I pray that you save this man's soul. Your arm is not too short to save. God, open his heart so that he may see the light of the gospel and repent and believe. And that went over like a lead balloon. That family was not happy because you don't pray for my son's salvation. He's already saved. (laughs) And and that was like the straw that broke the camel's back, you know. Like, you, don't tell me my son's not. He prayed that prayer when he was four years old. You know. All I'm saying is, again, that, that whole inoculation thing. It's very difficult to lead a Christian who is like an Osteen Christian or something to the Lord in this day and age because they can't hear you. They won't hear you because they have been inoculated. They've received sufficient amount of scriptures to tell them that they're fine without ever coming to the knowledge of salvation. Because it's got nothing to do with sanctification. It has nothing to do with God's glory at all. It has to do with them and their life and all that they can have and experience. And so think about trying to like bring this message to one of them. Can't. Why not? Because they are so committed. These guys cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. They were so committed to what they believed. You know, I'm convinced the reason so many churches have blended biblical views on marriage and same-sex marriage, biblical version of marriage and same-sex marriage, is because LGBT fanatics are more committed to their cause than this crop of pastors we currently have are to theirs. 
Like, why, why is this even a problem? Why is, I understand it could be a problem in the world. Why is this even a problem in the church? Like, how is this a problem in the church? Because the one side, the fanatics were more committed to their cause than this crop of pastors we have today are committed to theirs. So what I'm trying to show you here is these people are tremendously committed. Let's go verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved or prophesied on until the time of the offering of ovulation. And there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he, repair, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down or thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made, he made a trench about the altar as great as, uh, as, great as would contain two shears, sears, I don't know how you want to pronounce that, of seed. And he put the wood in order to, uh, and cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offerings and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And then they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water run, ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the ovulation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things in your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, O God, and that, that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Interesting thing there is that it was in fact God who turned their hearts back to Him again. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell all and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. So if you step back a little bit, you see what's going on here. Here is Elijah the prophet. He's in fact confronting the king by challenging the king's false gods, the prophets of Baal. And the people of the nation are there watching. So it is a prophet addressing the head of state. And this is important for us to understand Today, whenever the church wants to point a finger at, at the state or at politicians and say, hey, something is out of order, everybody would like, and their grandmothers, of course, immediately shouts, separation between church and state, separation between church and state. And yes, there is separation between church and state, of course, so that the church can be protected from the state. There is separation, separation between church and state, but there is also no separation between state and God. So God actually ins instituted four governments. Self-government, family government, father, church government, elders, civil government, right? And when he instituted those governments, not one of them was under another but not under God. 
In other words, not one of those governments was under another government but didn't have to answer to God. No. Every single one of those governments are under God and have to, are being held accountable by God, including the state. So yeah, separation between church and state, but there's no separation between state and God. They too need to answer to God. And that is why the prophet went to the head of state and he confronted them. He confronted him. Even the church is not called to be the state, even though you know, the church is not the state. We know this, but the church in every generation is called to exercise prophetic criticism when governments become unjust. So it is clear that syncretism was the children of Israel's most bitter enemy. And we have to connect these dots. These dots over how when God created and designed marriage, He did so in order to express something. Christ's relationship to the church. That's why marriage is there. Right? Our relationship to Him. Now, if our relationship to Him is broken because we have, we have greater appetites for false gods or for idols, that is called spiritual adultery. And that is what Israel fell into, spiritual adultery. They, they went after the false gods. They went after the idols as they walked away from God. And that's why God actually divorced Israel. This was their num number one most bitter enemy is syncretism. Syncretism is what destroyed Israel and it is what will cause God to eventually turn His back on them. This is what will destroy a church. This is what will destroy a denomination. This is what will destroy a nation. And this is what will destroy the individual. Exodus 20 verse 3 and 6 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. So what I'd like to do is just give a call to action as we close. And I'd like to ask a few questions. Number one is, what have you added or taken away from the God of the Bible? Like, how is your view of God not the same as Scripture? Do you make Him less supreme and less sovereign than Scriptures say that He is? If you do, that's syncretism because you have added your belief system or your opinion to what the Bible says is true about Him. Do you make yourself more supreme and more sovereign than scriptures allow you to? Here's a good question. How discerning are you regarding adding alien beliefs to your Christianity? How discerning are you regarding adding, adding alien beliefs to your current belief system? You see, syncretism can be the most insidious thing. Nobody goes, oh, you know what, I want to start worshiping an idol. Nobody does that, right? That's not how it happens. It is incremental. It is small. Um, it's difficult to think that, you know, well, let me not go there, but it's very difficult to raise, a ch raise children today, especially in the public schools, without things being added to their belief system consistently that is contrary to scriptures. 
But my question is, how discerning are you regarding adding alien belief systems to your Christianity? I want to give you a couple of examples. Oftentimes, there are these social issues, right? And what happens is we actually agree with other people on a specific social issue. Let's say, for instance, abortion. And then what we do is we see these guys stand with us on that issue. And then we lock arms, we take hands, and we fight abortion. That's the right thing to do. It would be wrong to say, oh, I'm not going to fight abortion. Because Muslims do too. You, know, you can't do that. No, you have to do what is right. But you always have to be, be, be careful to not become one worth because you have a common enemy. See? Therein lies the deception. It is also always glorious to find somebody who believes as you do over an issue. But shake that thing out. <laughs> See, how much do we really believe the same? And not just how much do we really believe the same on issues. Which issues do we believe the same? And we're going to get to that one. Everybody wants to call people together. Let's get, let's get united against this thing. United, uni unity, unity is important. Watch out for that word. Here's the next one. Importing philosophy into your theology. Importing philosophy into your theology. That is syncretism. Again, folks, nobody abandons God and walks to a golden calf and goes and bows down before the thing. That's not how it happens. Many small little influences filter in and starts changing the direction. And you start grabbing onto little opinions and they become belief systems eventually. And then, and then you wonder, like, how did I get so far away? It's because we didn't look at these small little details, these small little course corrections that were not taken leads us into the wrong direction altogether. So watch out for importing philosophy into theology. Now, I like philosophy, but one thing that we have to make sure we do is we always bring our theology, uh, we always bring our philosophy to our existed theology. Don't bring your theology to um, um, your existing philosophy. For instance, I've mentioned before, I love people like um, clinical psychologists like Jordan Peterson. The only thing is, you have to, before you agree with somebody, you have to know what is it that they're actually talking about. Is that, do you believe in a real Jesus who actually walked the earth and who actually performed miracles? He actually walked on water. He was actually above God of creation. Do you believe that he's in fact Emmanuel, God with us? Do you believe this? Or do you believe that these are all just kind of ideas God is sharing with us so that we can, which liberal theologians, literally since the 19th century, they don't believe that things were actually real. They believe that most of these things are just ideas that God is sharing with us. Here's a big one. I think some of you will enjoy this, but syncretism has crept in also when it comes to the grace of God. Again, for by grace you've been saved. For by grace you've been saved. Not by grace plus human effort. It's not by grace and human volition. It is by the grace of God. 
he, as a matter of fact, overcomes, he overcame Paul's resistance. I mean, how clearer of an example can you have? I mean, here goes Paul. He's on his way to persecute Christ's followers, right? He wants nothing to do with Christ. His will is to erase any sign of Christ's work in this earth. And on his way to erase what Christ has done, Christ actually overcomes his resistance to Christ. <laughs> so how did that happen? The grace of God. I love how Augustine said, it, it is of nature to will. Will is of nature. To will is of nature. To will aright, that's of grace. So syncretism is saying, yeah, the grace of God saves, but we have to add human volition to it. Here's another one in a different context. You also see it in daily living. I mean, when you go to England, the church they have, the Church of England, is in fact government-run, right? It's a government church. That was, never God's, that was never God's plan to have, um, uh, when you see the government demand churches close their doors in order to slow the spread. I mean, no, the church was never, is one of the governments God put up, and it was never supposed to abort the will of God or the word of God in order to obey a government. That's syncretism right there also, and that is how we came to the Church of England. Churches who are, and, and, and I'll, I'll come to a, a closing here before I talk about <laughs> uh, penal substitution atonement. But churches who are, let's say, for instance, in this day and age, talk only about things that are not pertaining to the challenges people face now in their lives. They go like, well, no, we hold fast to a doctrine of this, that, and the other, but they always duck and dive the issue that people are facing right here and right now. For instance... You know, I've landed on the idea <clears throat> that churches who are non-woke are in fact woke. That's actually how it shakes out. Um, and here's why. Let's say, for instance, there's a church. And this church says, no, we are not into sin. We're not into sin. But neither are we against it. We say nothing about it. Right? Now there are a lot of churches like that. But that's what that is. If you are not, you can't say, I'm not a sin, sinning church, but neither are we anti-sin. That's like saying, we're not woke, but neither are we anti-woke. In other words, we'll just keep quiet about all the sin happening and all the ungodliness happening around us. We'll just be quiet about it. Well, that's a church that's going to be quiet about sin. <laughs> so you can't be non. You have to be anti. Again, how long are you going to limp between two opinions? When are you going to draw a line somewhere? And instead of just telling Bible stories that are not pertaining to where we are at in this world, there's no sign that they are in fact for Christ if they cannot be against that which is against Christ. You see, so it's very, very insidious in this that if you are going to find people that agree with you on certain issues, here is the one issue that you should unite around. There are many words that are used that, that 
that causes you to go like, actually, yeah, you know what, I need to embrace something. Like, for instance, tolerance, right? As a matter of fact, Jesus rebuked the church in Revelation for tolerating Jezebel. They wouldn't draw lines, and they got rebuked for it. So here is the thing we have to make sure. If somebody is fighting for a cause that you want to fight for, and you think, well, that's a godly cause. You know, the poor. Let's help the poor. That's a godly cause. Well, this person wants to help the poor. So we're all on the same page. Well, let's unite. That's wonderful. Let's unite, and together we become brothers. Well, that's not really what you ought to be uniting around. Now, you have to do what's right. But, and you can do what's right with people who disagree with you, but never unite around in, in, a, in, a, in a religious way around people who do not ascribe to penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's the thing I measure everything by. The penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Because that's the very heart of the gospel. The penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, for those of you who who haven't done the Bible school, it is the penalty against your sin, which is God's wrath against you, that falls upon your substitute, Jesus, and in so doing makes atonement between you and God the Father, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ in your life. Now, if there, if there is an agreement on that issue right there, there is no agreement on the gospel. <laughs> you don't have the same faith as that person. Can you see what I'm saying? I'm trying to help you measure or, or, or draw the line to see, okay, even though I may agree with other people on certain issues, uh, we don't have the same faith unless we unite around that issue right there, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ Jesus. And if... And, and, if anything is added to it, syncretism, it's no longer Christianity. If anything is taken away from it, syncretism is no longer Christianity. It's idol worship. And so what I'm trying to do here, family, is I'm trying to make sure you uh, don't get deceived in finding people that have similar, similar beliefs as you do in areas outside of Christianity and thinking that you're on the same page. That is and was Israel's biggest downfall. That is and was many Christians' downfall. And that is something that we have to be warned against. And that is the story of Elijah and Ahab, at least that time they had a confrontation. Let's pray.